Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and in this episode, I'm joined by Francesca Brady to talk about the importance of good air quality in our offices and why this matters to the customer experience. As more and more companies move to a hybrid world where workplace choice is ubiquitous, our customers who are voting with their feet will choose to work where they feel most productive and feel safe and taken care of, especially coming out of the pandemic. As you know, the customer experience and well-being is a focus of mine at Bold, and in my role at NewFlex, we're often helping asset managers solve for this as we manage assets across their portfolios. So I had to invite Francesca to have a chat. She's the CEO of AirRated and is also helping asset managers improve the well-being of their real estate customers and leverage this to win business. Speaking of office asset managers, here's Mark Tyson from Legal and General Investment Managers to help introduce this episode. Hello, my name is Mark Tyson and I work for Legal and General Investment Management. I don't think anybody will have recognised the importance of air quality um, as much as they do now. We're fully expected occupiers and we're already seeing it to demand understanding of how we're providing ventilation into space and demonstrating a high quality of air to support their teams. This can only be achieved through an accreditation that's adopted by the industry and we believe AirRated is in one of the best opportunities to create this. Although they use similar techniques to other accreditations, the simplicity of the approach, the techniques they use, has massively impressed us. And that's why we're looking to roll this out across 2 million square foot, at least, of offices over this year. And we'll also be looking into our build-to-rent and university accommodation, where we understand that healthy environments really impact the way that we live and work. Thank you, Mark. In this episode, Francesca and I discuss the science behind how good air quality affects productivity, we learn what an air score is and how customers will choose where they work based on its air score and ultimately how this could affect asset valuation. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. Now, we unpack a lot in this episode and geek out a little bit as we drill down into the granular details of the science. So sharpen your pencils and grab some caffeine. Let's go meet Francesca. Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Kayla Parker, and today I'm joined by Francesca Brady, CEO of Air Rated. Air Rated's mission is to establish a simple system for the measurement of air quality within buildings and have established the global benchmark for indoor air quality, that's IAQ. Now, we've all heard about Wired Score and their ratings for a building's connectivity. Now we have a building's air score. Francesca holds a master's degree in environmental geoscience from Royal Holloway, University of London, home to some of the world's leading experts in the sciences. And during her degree, she found specific interest in the topic of indoor air quality. So after graduating, she channeled her knowledge and passion for this into her career. In 2019, she co-founded AirRated to further pursue her interest in the effects of IEQ on the health, well-being, and productivity of people. Now she's here today to talk about the importance of good air quality in our offices and why this matters to the customer experience. Welcome to the Work Bowl podcast, Francesca. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. I know um, Mark Tyson with Legal in General. Um, I am, they're one of your customers. Mark was on our podcast in season one. We actually talked about uh, air quality and its effects on productivity. So the first question I have for you is just talking about the science of yeah. how the air we breathe affects our work. So aside from the obvious outdoor pollution, how does indoor mm -hmm 
air impact productivity? Well, first of all, I think I'll start by saying it's quite nice to see someone take an active interest in indoor air quality and then actually action something off the back of it. Um, there are lots of discussions at the moment about indoor air quality, but unlike Mark, some people talk a lot about it um, and are yet to do anything. Um, so, yeah, it's legal in general. Yeah, one of our customers um, signing up a whole bunch of their buildings to use this. The air score is like their kite mark. So, like you said, the value that we see in an air score is, yes, the health and productivity or the health and well-being benefits, but also there is a productivity benefit that's kind of misunderstood or perhaps not misunderstood, but just lacking people lack knowledge on it. Mm. Um, so I think, first of all, when we talk about productivity with regards to indoor air quality, we'll start with CO2, because I think that's possibly one that most people are familiar with. Yep. Um, so CO2, carbon dioxide, um, mainly driven by occupant density. So how many people you've got in a space and ventilation effectiveness. Um, CO2 is really interesting. And there's a Harvard study, which I'm sure is quite widely known now, um, conducted by uh, Professor Joseph Allen and his cohort. Um, the study is called COGFX. Uh, there's a really nice website, infographics on it. But in there, they've suggested that with elevated levels of CO2, you can see around 8 to 11 percent decline in cognitive performance, uh, which impacts productivity. Um, so quite a nice relatable stat. This is not part of the Harvard study. I'll just caveat it with that. Hey, can, um, you, can you, Francesca, can you explain that? Why does that affect uh, productivity? So CO2 impacts um, how your brain functions. So in this study, they were looking at multiple different facets of cognitive function from basic activity up to crisis response. So it it essentially fogs your brain. Um, so it makes you feel tired, kind of sleepy. It impacts your physiology, um, which has a direct impact on how your brain works. So with basic function, that is something as simple as proofreading a document. Crisis response would be something probably quite similar to traders making snap decisions on the trading floor. Um, so this study looked at multiple different aspects of cognitive performance and then looked at different levels of CO2 and how that cognitive performance was impacted. So I hope that answers your question. It does. Thank you. And it clearly, you know, when we're talking about people coming back into the office after this last year of remote working, uh, we're talking about creating an experience and environments that people can be more productive in the office than they could be at home. Mm -hmm. um, so if we get more people in the office and with density levels subject yeah. to you know COVID restrictions and, mm -hmm. and those being relaxed uh, in the near future, uh, more people are going to be in the office breathing, producing CO2. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how do how then does um, does does an an office landlord or uh, should I say an office building ensure that those CO2 levels are at the right levels? So interesting point, and you're right that as soon as you start introducing more people into a space, those levels are going to rise. In office buildings, they tend to be mechanically ventilated and have the ability to draw in outdoor air to dilute things like CO2 and the buildup of VOCs, um, so volatile organic compounds. So that, those sorry, those VOCs, yeah. those are in like the paints and stuff on in the chemicals? Yes. The, so okay. it's um, they can come from a number of different sources. Um, so if you're cooking lunch, then VOCs will be emitted from uh, your food and your drink. 
cleaning products is another big one. So if you're using quite potent cleaning chemicals, um, they will compromise indoor air quality because they have high levels of VOCs that can irritate your eyes and your and your skin. Um, but also you're right, soft furnishings, paints, finishes. So in a newly fitted out office so to Cat B, say, there are probably going to be quite high levels of VOCs. And it goes through a period of what's called off-gassing. So new furniture, when you put it into a space, will slowly release chemicals from its fabrics. Um, so you could store it in a warehouse for a couple of weeks and then start introducing it into your space or just choose materials and finishes that are specifically low VOC. Okay. Okay. And then you were saying earlier with the more people coming into the office and the breathing and yes. how do we ensure that the, the, I guess the air circulation is at the right levels? Yes. As more people are coming into this space, I think a really key initiative is to monitor the indoor environment. So by monitoring CO2 levels, then you can start actioning things to improve the air quality and keep those levels optimum. Um, buildings, like I said, particularly office buildings, tend to be mechanically ventilated. Um, so you could always employ something like demand-controlled ventilation if the system is sophisticated and capable of doing so. And you can base that on levels of CO2. So pull more outdoor air. I'm not going to use the phrase fresh air, otherwise people will start atting me. Mm -hmm. um, so you can start pulling more outdoor air into the building to dilute the buildup of CO2, which is a little more difficult in your own home because they don't tend to be mechanically ventilated. All you can really do is open a window or open the door, um, which is sufficient because of the low number of people. But in offices, yeah, the key things are monitor the indoor air quality, so monitor the levels of CO2, and then have actions that you can implement to control those levels. So one of the first things I think of when the topic of M and E uh, and the okay. air quality and the air filter filtration system uh, of a building comes up is cost and investment and high cost. And so I guess thinking around this, and I, I agree that this is crucial to deliver the right customer experience and making mm -hmm. sure people have a good environment. But whose responsibility is this? Is it the asset owner's responsibility? Is it the real estate customer's responsibility to invest in this? Mm. So this question crops up from time to time, um, particularly when it comes to the money. And you're absolutely right that people start to try and shift responsibility whenever there's a cost associated to that. So I'd say the way that we look at improvements to indoor air quality are threefold. So we first of all look at behavioral aspects. So this is how people are using the space. I think the responsibility lies on the landlord to give the information to their customers to say this is how to best use the space because you don't know what you don't know. So by coming into a space, you need to be told things like just the really simple things best practice use of space, leave the meeting room door open after you've had a meeting so that CO2 and TVOCs can come back down to baseline, back down to equilibrium before the next lot of people go in there. Because if that CO2 level doesn't have time to come back down, the next cohort of people moving into that space is starting with a much higher baseline and that will go up to much higher elevated levels of CO2 and impact their productivity more significantly. So it's things like that where you don't necessarily know that as an occupier, a tenant, a customer going into a building, but the landlord needs to empower you with that information to make decisions. So that's the behavior aspects. The second that we look at is operational. And this will be things like what sort of cleaning chemicals you use, which is what we were just talking about. 
So you want to move away realistically from those high VOC potent cleaning chemicals, switch to eco-friendly ones, great for the environment, don't compromise in dry quality. Again, that aspect, depending on the situation, could lie, the responsibility could lie with the landlord if they're the ones who manage the space in that way and do the cleaning, or it could lie with the tenant. And there needs to be a very defined framework and structure of accountability, ownership and responsibility for people to understand which bits relate to them, which bits they need to be improving and actioning. Mm. Because the final one of those, this three-step approach is mechanical. That one, in almost all cases, will lie with a landlord or property owner. That's the point where, to be honest, it's our last resort because we want to do as much as we can in terms of you know, marginal gains through um, ensuring best practice use of space, best practice um, operation of the building. The mechanical aspects are the ones we come to last because you're right, the, these are the ones that require investment. So when you're talking about m it's usually there is a cost associated with anything you're going to do to improve the building infrastructure and the building systems. Um, it could be negligible. And if it should just be the way that you maintain your systems needs to be more proactive rather than reactive or scheduled, then that is a very low cost mechanical change. So for example, with just using the, the legal and general example, they're monitoring their indoor environments in real time. So if they're monitoring something like PM 2.5, which they are, which is fine dust, so particulate matter with a diameter of 2.5 microns or less, which means nothing to anyone, but it's 3% of the width of human hair. So invisible to the naked eye. And if you're monitoring indoor levels of PM 2.5, and you can see that slowly, slowly over a couple of months, the baseline is trending upwards you can implement cleaning after three months instead of six months, if that's what your planned maintenance says. We actually experienced in London a dust storm in February, and the monitors inside the legal and general properties picked up high levels of PM 2.5 indoors when this dust storm came through the area. It's things like that where that's an exceptional event, but it happens. So you have a Saharan dust storm followed by we actually had two in quite quick succession, but those two events should trigger a filter clean or a filter change rather than just going by your six monthly schedule. So in terms of the mechanical things, it could be something as simple as that, that might fall into operational as well. But when you're talking about what types of filters to be using, you just need to be using the ones that are most appropriate for your outdoor environment. So if you're in a really congested, dense urban city, your filters need to be much higher grade than ones, say, in the Lake District. If you've got an office out in the Lake District, lucky you. Um, but that, that's I'm the kind just, of I'm thing not, we would look at. I'm just going to say I'm not sitting in the Lake District right now. I wish okay, I was. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Um, and those are the sorts of things that that cost is eventually going to sit with landlord property owner just because of the inherent nature of how these things work. But there are certain things before you get to that point that will sit, the responsibility will sit with the occupier because it's just, it goes without saying that the landlord can deliver a certain quality of space and say, this is the quality of space I'm handing over to you as a tenant. It's just the inherent nature of introducing people into a space and the way that they use the space and what they introduce into the space can have a massive impact on air quality. 
And at that point, it's not truly representative of how the landlord is managing the space or the quality of space they're delivering. It's actually how the people inside it are using it. That's super fascinating. Um, I've taken some notes here because uh, the, the PM 2.5 squared yes. or well, the, yeah. that, that's just, um, it's just very interesting to me. It's the nerd coming out in me to geek out over this. Yes. But um, I, I was doing in my research for this podcast episode, mm-hmm. I saw that you were quoted in a Times article um, yes. that was talking about this new government mandate proposal, landlords to provide better ventilation systems in their buildings. Yeah. Can you Can you talk about that? Yeah, so this, um, I mean, the knee-jerk reaction in the industry was, oh my God, must talk to anyone and everyone I can. Um, <laughs> <for> because, <laughs> yeah, lucky okay, me, had lots of conversations about this one. Um, so in that's referencing the future building standard. Uh, the future building standard applies to new buildings or heavy refurbishments, um, which is going to be happening a lot particularly with our push to net zero, there are going to be lots of heavy heavy refurbishments. The, the contentious subject when we're talking about healthy buildings is if I do, if I employ enhanced ventilation, I'm going to massively compromise my energy consumption. So it's always been this clash of the titans, healthy buildings versus sustainable buildings. The future building standard bridges this gap quite nicely. Um, In terms of regulation and legislation that have come out of the government, this is one of their finer moments. Um, So it's kind of bridging that gap between sustainability and healthy buildings. It's sensitive to both aspects. So that's really refreshing to see. Um, But the part that people are sensitive about is enhanced ventilation is going to cost me money and also may compromise some of my sustainability targets unless I improve my sustainability elsewhere. So the the thing we say as aerated is we need to be improving ventilation in buildings. This isn't necessarily by ramping up the rates of outdoor air coming into the building, ramping up the rate of ventilation. It could just be managing this through a hybrid approach. So employing openable windows that can improve ventilation without having to ramp up your energy bills. So I think when we're looking at the minimum standard at the moment being 10 litres per second per person, that is not sufficient for providing good indoor spaces. It is adequate and adequate is not necessarily good, particularly because these standards were put in place decades ago. Mm. Um, So it needs to be bumped up. I think it's gone up to uh, 15 litres per second per person. Um, which is probably a little bit too high. I think we need to be more in line with BCO guidance, which suggests 12 litres per second per person, um, particularly with the occupancy rates that we like to design to in the UK. Mm. We need to be thinking about 12 rather than 15. I think 15 um, is, well, I was actually talking about this uh, yesterday. So 15 is great, but in that document, it says 15 should be, what can be applied to a space in the building in the event of an emergency like a pandemic. The That's counterintuitive because in theory, people shouldn't be in that space if it's a pandemic. If it's really serious, people shouldn't be in those buildings. Sure. We should be socially distanced. We should be working from home. But yeah, I agree that I think what they really alluded to was we need to be thinking about demand control ventilation which is a really great way of providing healthy spaces without compromising that sustainability that I was speaking about. 
So rather than a consistent controlled volume of air being entered into a space, it fluctuates dependent on occupancy levels, depending on CO2 levels, um, which I think is a really smart way to go about it. So the initial knee-jerk reaction of, oh my God, this is going to cost me loads of money, is now kind of dampened because they understand the approach that's being suggested in the future building standard, which is the shift to demand control ventilation. So employing technology to help that approach, but absolutely not just not just mandating that it needs to be 15 litres per second per person, up by 50% from what it is at the moment across the whole building yeah. 24-7. It's nothing like that. So I think the um, the headline was probably quite startling. And then the deeper insight and the deeper information, it, it's not quite as scary as, as perhaps first thought. Well, head, headlines are written that way for a reason. And, yes, they are. And, Clickbait. And, and I, I think, you know, the mandate is probably generalizing when, like you said, if, you, if you're if you employing smart technology, then you can optimize and uh, yes, based, on, exactly. based on demand and occupancy. And mm -hmm. But actually it brings up probably a good time to, to talk about air rated. And um, so if you could share a little bit about air, the air score and how you're helping landlords improve air quality for their customers. Yeah. So with the air score, we standardize our approach to assessing indoor air quality. So we look at five key parameters. Uh, the first one being PM 2.5, which we've discussed. So that's fine dust. And that's the really nasty stuff that can get deep into the lungs. And it's so fine that it can even get into the bloodstream. So it aggravates conditions like asthma, but can also cause uh, cardiovascular diseases. Um, so really terrible stuff is also linked to productivity. So I know before we talked about CO2 being the main driver for productivity, but there is quite a nice piece of research at the moment to suggest that PM 2.5 has an effect on same day returns on the um, New York Stock Exchange, which is, I mean, when you look at the financial impact, that one's massive. So PM 2.5, massive impact on health, massive impact on productivity. So going back to what I was saying at the very beginning, the value of the air score lying, yes, in health, but sometimes that's seen as a fluffy subject. Also translating that into productivity across multiple different aspects and not just focusing on CO2 um, is where we start to win over the people who are signing the checks. So CFOs, FDs uh, and those types. So PM 2.5 is the first parameter we look at. VOCs is the other one. So volatile organic compounds, CO2, the main driver for productivity, but also temperature and humidity. Um, because they're two really key aspects of the indoor environment and sometimes overlooked, particularly humidity, which, in my opinion, is the unsung hero of a healthy building, overlooked in so many standards and so many bits of legislation. But it's one of those things where if you've got a particularly dry environment, it can promote the survival rate of viruses, regardless of whether that is COVID or just the common cold and flu. So optimizing humidity is a way to really make your building future-proof and resilient, not just to, you know, we talk about sustainability and making buildings future-proof and resilient to changing physical climates, but actually things like indoor air quality and optimizing those things make your building future-proof and resilient to things like pandemics, which are apparently a thing for us now. So temperature and humidity are, are a massive part in indoor air quality. So we look at those five parameters to, to standardize our approach. We also have standardized the approach because when you look to outdoor air quality, it is a bit of a minefield when you look at air quality indexes. So they can vary from country to country uh, in terms of how they're ranked. So in the UK, we've got um, a 0 to 10 index, whereas in the US, they've got 0 to 500. 
Um, in India, they've got not to a thousand, but also the methodology for applying that rating is entirely different from country to country. So knowing that that exists in the outdoor environment, we want to standardize the approach for indoor environments. It also gives our clients a way to compare like for like from building to building or different portfolios in different um, places in the world. So that's what we try and do. So I think the improvements in indoor air quality and how we help our clients improve it for their customers is coming back to that threefold approach I spoke about before. So the behavioral stuff, the operational stuff, the mechanical stuff, it's more if you're a landlord, like I said, you should be empowering your tenants, your customers to. And I think customers is a really nice word, actually, for for speaking about um, tenants and occupiers in buildings. So giving customers the information they need in order for them to manage their space best and for them to optimize their own space is great. And it's not saying that, um, you know, the landlord's going to be a big brother and govern the way that you use your space. It's just equipping you with the knowledge and the awareness and the information that you need to be able to deliver a great environment for yourself. And it's one of those things I've spoken a lot about control being at the heart of all of this Mm. and building occupiers. So people coming into the space, just normal people like you and I, we like control. Just it's part of human nature that we like control. We have this innate sense of being wanting to be connected to nature, but also wanting that control. So, I mean, that kind of um, occupier demand and expectation is filtered up into building design. And that's one of the reasons that we have openable windows is because people want that control to be able to open a window and get what they perceive to be fresh air into a space. I can tell you for sure that if you're in London, it's not necessarily fresh, Um, which is also where you need to be mindful in terms of what you're monitoring. But that element of control, if you are uh, like a customer looking for space, so it's such a flat market at the moment and there are very few differentiators. But if through using transparency and having been proactive in assessing your space, using an independent third party, getting your certification, being able to simply effectively communicate something as important as indoor air quality, that differentiates you massively. So if you're a customer looking for space and you've got five or six spaces that you've shortlisted Mm -hmm. and they're roughly the same rent, roughly the same location, uh, same access to public transport, same amenities, but one of them offers you that transparency and that visibility of the quality of the physical space you'll be moving into, I think particularly now, because we want so much of that control back in our lives, because COVID's just been completely out of our control, you would go with a known entity versus an unknown. And if you can control what you eat and what you drink, but the one thing that you can't control is what you breathe, then having a landlord display that I think is massively powerful. Okay. So I agree with you um, to the, having that transparency and, and showing that the, the air score is, is important, assuming we all know what the air score means. Yes. So uh, I want to sort of go back a little bit and, and drill in some, if that's okay. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm curious on how, you know, air rated is supporting your, your clients um, so they can support their customers. But <laughs> you talked about the behavioral aspects, the operational frameworks and, and the mechanical aspects, those three yeah. areas earlier. Are you helping these uh, office landlords with those with all of those three areas? Uh, well, obviously the behavioral aspects, mm-hmm. um, best practices. Um, or, are you helping them sort of advise yep. those? Or yep. So we offer um, an occupier handbook 
So we work across both commercial and residential sectors. So we call it either an occupy handbook or a resident handbook, depending on the setting. But we will outline best practice because it's not really up to a landlord to know what best practice use for space is. But it's kind of up to them to go and seek out experts to give them that information for them to then give to their customers. So we offer this handbook to say this is best practice use of space and lots of tips and tricks to optimize your space. Um, It's one of those things. And this is such I feel like this is a horrible analogy, but I really can't find a different one where on a cigarette packet, you've got that bit of information at the front that says if you smoke these cigarettes, this is what's going to happen. So it's giving you the information. It's then up to you to make the choice. Um, So so that that would that would then that kind of not. In this case, I guess with a with a, an office building, we wouldn't necessarily have a warning that says if you come into this office building, you might die or you might get exactly you know, have it might affect your asthma. But it'll be more the reverse side of that, where exactly you promote the good aspects. Is if you come into this office building, we have great air quality. Your asthma is going to be fine. Yeah, it's exactly that, and definitely the storytelling aspect is something we help landlords with because okay, well we help landlords and leasing agents because. Leasing agents are the ones that are going to be selling this space. So unless they understand the true value in a meaningful and relatable way, I think that's probably key because I can bang on about PM 2.5 so I'm blue in the face and I know what I'm talking about. And there are a handful of other people who know what I'm talking about. But unless it's storytelling and you make it personal, so personal to the people who are looking around the space, what does this mean selfishly for my health? and my productivity, because I want to know how I'm going to be impacted if I move into this space. It's enabling them, it's enabling, we enable landlords, one with the information, two with the story behind air quality, because also it can be quite dull. So we are here to kind of jazz things up a bit, keep it nice and factual. So everything underpinning it is factual, it's evidence-based, performance-based. We use sensor technology, it's highly accurate, but it's- That's what I want to dive into, the sensor technology. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you there. No, go for it. I think that's that's what's um, to me is what is driving this. Um, mm-hmm. the, the ability to have the transparency is the sensor technology. So are are you then helping the landlords get that installed, and you're then monitoring it and then assessing it and, and analyzing the data and then awarding a a score, an air score. Is that how it works? Yeah, you've basically hit the nail on the head. So we can come in and. Landlords can rent equipment from us. So we don't produce the sensors ourselves. We'll go out and find suppliers of sensors, manufacturers that we know have highly accurate sensors. Um, And we understand that it's not in, this doesn't fall into anyone's budget at the moment, which kind of circles back to your part on responsibility. Even if the landlord takes on responsibility, it's then which budget for the landlord, does it fit into? Does it fit into marketing or does it fit into HR or does it fit into somewhere else, property operations? So it's one of those things where, again, you struggle in terms of ownership, even within an organization. Well, I imagine it's much easier to to do this in new developments because you can start off budgeting for it. Yeah, it's so much easier in new builds. And I mean, we have, so just to quickly recap the, the sensor part, we are able to put sensors into a building and then take them out. So have them in for the period of assessment and then take them out until such time that a landlord can find the budget or knows what they want to do in terms of the ongoing monitoring, because we are massive advocates of ongoing monitoring. 
Um, we want everyone to have sensors in their spaces in an ideal world. That would be what's happening. But as it happens, there are, well, one, there are loads of sensors on the market and there's not one governing body that everyone trusts to give them the seal of approval. So it's a bit of um, a minefield if you're a landlord looking to employ sensor technology, which is where we can advise. Mm. But our kind of product and service is we can come in with sensors for the assessment period, take them out again, or you have the option to leave them in. And then coming back to your point about new builds, yes, it is a lot easier, a lot more cost effective. You can have significant impact on the building if you're able to come in, particularly for a new build at design phase. So we've got two certifications as aerated. The first is the performance-based one, which is what we're talking about, putting sensors into a space, gathering data. That's the performance-based aspect of it. We've also got a design certification. So we've got m and &E engineers in-house or HVAC engineers, and they will do a review and assessment of the design specification for a building. They are very well versed in clean air technologies and they're all HVAC engineers by background. So they're really well positioned to look at a spec and say, this is great because the m and &E engineer that you've got is obviously very good at being sustainable, at creating a sustainable building spec. But what they're lacking is the knowledge to make it also healthy. Mm. So that's where we come in and we can make, like you said, significant improvements at that stage because there is still the budget um, yep. We're not retrospectively doing anything. We're not trying to retrofit equipment or anything like that. So particularly on going from behavioral, operational, mechanical, the mechanical um, side of things can be really impacted uh, in a positive way if we can come in at design phase for a new build. Well, that makes sense. Um, and so what what is your advice then for landlords with older assets? Um, what, what What is their, their first step? What do they need to do? So that's kind of where this threefold approach came from, starting with the behavioral things, because you're absolutely right that with older existing stock, there are limitations. There are particularly limitations if you're looking at grade one and two listed stock, where you can't really do anything on that final part, the mechanical part. And what you have to focus on are the marginal gains that you can get by the behavioral changes and the operational changes. More often than not, buildings are good as acting as buffers to the outdoor environment, particularly if they're mechanically ventilated, but also if they're naturally ventilated. I mean, there are walls. There is that very obvious physical barrier to what's going on outside. We need to be careful in terms of the indoor sources of pollution. So if you're bringing in um, new soft furniture, that's not great, particularly if you haven't allowed it to off-gas off-site because you're just bringing in this massive source of VOC, which will off-gas for a period of weeks, even perhaps months at times. Things like uh, photocopiers and fax, not fax machines. I don't know who faxes anymore. Um, what's, a, what's a fax machine? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But photocopiers and printers, because some people still use paper. Photocopies and printers, they will emit something called ozone. And ozone, when it's in the ozone layer, is great because the ozone layer, people have this like positive connotation with because it's protecting us from the sun's UV rays. When ozone is at our, our human level and we're breathing it in, it's terrible for us. It's a terrible, it has a terrible respiratory impact. So I don't know if you ever used scale electrics when you were younger. Did you? Uh, what? <laughs> scale electrics. 
anyone what? in the UK is going to hang you for this. <laughs> okay. Yep. This is the American coming at me again. What, what is this? Scale electrics is where, <laughs> I feel like we're going really off on a tangent here, but it's where you can lay down bits of track and it's uh, an electric car that zooms around the track and you Oh yeah, of course. Of course. We didn't call anyway, it that. Anyway, <laughs> so perhaps you call it something different. Um, scale electrics, there's a really strange smell that I used to use it when I was a kid anyway. And I can remember this smell that used to come off the track and obviously didn't know what it was. But then I learned that it's actually ozone and it's the ozone destroying the um, skin cells and the hairs in your nose. And that's why there's that funny smell. Oh, so kind of brilliant. disturbing, sinister story, like to lower the tone. Um, but it's it's things like that. That comes off photocopiers and printers as well. And you can smell it. I mean, partly you can smell um, the ink on the paper, but also you can definitely smell that ozone. And it's in we will advise people on where to put printers and things like that. So in an old building, just slight changes to the design of the space by putting printers in their own room, if that's uh, doable, but at least putting them behind a solid wall so that they're not out in the open plan office space is a good step to take. Best practice use of space. And then the operational stuff does have a significant impact. But even things like using plants in a space, I know that plants... That's a pretty contentious thing. If you speak to anyone who's in the air quality space about plants, I you'll get very you'll get varying degrees of answer to this in terms of how impactful plants are on a space. They certainly have their limitations. And I'm not by any means saying they're the silver bullet in any way, but they have a positive psychological benefit because of this innate uh, connection with nature that we want positive psychological benefit. Also, they do reduce uh, CO2, TVOCs, and they're really good for regulating humidity. They marginally decrease it, but it, particularly if we're looking at marginal gains, they are good things to introduce into a space. There are other things like photocatalytic paints. Again, contentious subject. I feel like a lot of things in the air quality space are contentious, but photocatalytic paint is quite effective if you use it in an indoor environment. And you can paint walls normally with this photocatalytic paint. And it's things like that. So design changes and uh, painting and finishing touches that you can do, which will improve your environment without touching the building infrastructure. That makes sense. And as, as stock comes back to the market, um, as lease events come up mm -hmm. in, in over the next couple of years, um, because companies are right-sizing, mm -hmm. um, as they figure out the right, hybrid working um, uh, optimization for, for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I think land, there's going to be a lot of repurposing happening and some of the older yeah. stock that's out there needs to be repurposed. I hope everyone's taking notes on this or, or at least reach out to you because um, I think that, you know, look, I think there's a lot of people out there that are probably thinking in commercial real estate, we have a lot of, 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 of a traditional mindset and you know, we've been doing things a certain way for you know, decades and yeah. nobody's ever, you know, uh, had health problems uh, from working in an office. This is what mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that's the mindset in some, yeah. in some people. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody's had health problems. So what's the problem here? And I think the, the thing now is um, we have information at our fingertips um, Absolutely, and, and, yeah. and we have so much better transparency than we ever had before. Um, obviously, ESG is becoming a high priority on uh, uh, companies' boards and, and the well-being of teams. So my friend Alex Eds over at JLL, he tweeted out recently, savvy tenants will want hashtag air quality parameters secured in their lease, hashtag well-being. And I think that's 
that's spot on. And I think, you know, as we go forward, we're going to see that. So you mentioned earlier that companies are going to choose where they work based on air quality scores. So uh, that's exciting for me. I want to, I want to tie this into valuation because to me, the valuation, the value of a building is, is based upon, you know, how occupied that building is and the vacancy rates. And ultimately mm-hmm. there's a lot of other parameters around there, a lot of data that goes into that. But there was a report recently by the Real Estate Innovation Lab in partnership with MIT Center for Real Estate that suggested that the health of a building could impact its valuation. So mm-hmm. what's your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. You've covered a lot and I feel like there are bits and pieces <laughs> that I want to pick up on before I even get to valuation. <laughs> so your point about this estate rationalization where people start to look at their spaces and like that's way too much space because we're going to move to a flexible working schedule where, I don't know, for 60% of the week, people are going to be working from home. So because people will start to rationalize their estates, some uh, space will come, will free up for different use. Like you said, it's diversifying the use of these spaces, but particularly because um, as a company or an organization, or an organization, your space is going to magic to dramatically decrease. I think cost will be less of an issue because you're not having to apply a cost to 2 million square foot of real estate. You're just applying it to, let's just go extreme and say 200,000 square foot of real estate. So I think when it comes to the investment you put in, it's no longer that overwhelming when you look at how much space you actually have to improve. And I think particularly for older stock, just coming back to that quickly, monitoring is it's a really cost effective way to just understand your current state of play because like i said not all buildings are terrible people assume that older stock is terrible but older stock was developed before sustainability was a thing so older buildings are leaky which sounds terrible but actually it's really good for pollutants to be able to be diluted so it's one of those things where when we became increasingly conscious about sustainability we were making our buildings increasingly airtight, trapping ourselves in with pollution, which I'm sure you may have heard before in a number of videos about we spend 90% of our time indoors. And as we make our buildings more airtight, more sustainable, we're trapping ourselves in. Older stock doesn't actually have that problem. So they almost benefit from having leakier buildings, which doesn't necessarily come across as a good thing for sustainability, but for healthy buildings, it's okay. I see. Um, So I think monitoring is key. But also as people rationalize their estates, the cost associated with improvements is going to be much lower. Anyway, coming back to your point on valuation. So I think the way that we see value being delivered at the moment is not necessarily a premium being applied. So a higher cost per square foot. It tends to be acceleration of leasing campaigns and reduced void periods. So that's where we see the attraction and the benefit at the moment. We had one client in um, Brussels. So we're predominantly UK, but we've got a project over in Brussels. And they had a prospective tenant come and look around the space. And on their list of moving criteria, it was your classic uh, rent size location. And then fourth or fifth on that list were ventilation and indoor air quality, respectively. So they had evidently seen things in mainstream media, become more aware, um, become more knowledgeable about this sort of thing. So they had it on their list of key moving criteria. And at that point, our client was able to give them um, 
information about the air score. Subsequently, the deal transacted. And that's absolutely not to make mm. the massive assumption that it was because of the air score, but we were part of that compelling argument. So great space, great rent, great size, great location, but also great indoor air quality. So you're saying that it's not necessarily that buildings are going to charge more for higher air quality right now. That might come in yeah. the future. But right right now, the impact is someone's going back to what we were saying earlier. Someone's going to be looking at options and the building that publishes the um, mm -hmm. the air quality is going to be more attractive because there's more transparency and presumably, hopefully, a better air quality. Yeah. Um, and that's going to that's going to drive occupancy and that will have a knock on effect on valuation. But exactly, because I think. Sorry, yeah. go on. No, I think you're right that once once we start to understand this benefit a bit more, then you can start applying um, a value premium because you understand the market a bit better in terms of what value that's delivering by accelerating leasing campaigns and reducing void periods. Yep. Then you can flip it to value premium. And then at some point, there's going to be this critical mass of buildings that have air scores or, or whatever other healthy building certification you might look at, that it will at some point yeah, flip to a brown discount. Because I think that is probably... there's there's lots of discussion about whether it's going to be value premium or brown discount. And I think it will be both. They'll just happen at different times. So we'll start to see this curve of awareness being heightened, understanding the value premium, value premium being applied. And then lots of, lots of people, this becoming like a widely adopted thing to be doing because ESG is, so this as yep. a knock on effect will also be commonplace. Once it's commonplace, then you start to come down the other side of brown discount. Well, let's flip this on its head on its head for a moment. Yeah. Um, well, everybody has a smartphone. We all have apps, mm -hmm. and the technology is there. I think, where, or, or or maybe it's a question: Is the technology there where an app could actually measure the CO two level? So anybody in a building can can actually would be able to to test and measure the indoor air quality at some point. Yeah. And if that is the case, if that happens one day, then that's obviously going to create this massive um, reaction from from landlords to to be able to get ahead of that. Yeah, you're completely right. Because, I mean, Bosch, Bosch have got a Bosch sensor tech chip that at some point in the very near future is going to be small enough to be integrated into a smartphone. They already have smart applications for it, but the smartphone is next on their list of things to do, their list of priorities. And it's one of those things where we're increasingly seeing this democratization of data through apps like there's a company called Breezometer where you can log on online for free, type in your own address, because that's what a lot of people are interested in doing is putting their home home address in first, is um, you can check what the outdoor air quality is like in your area, mm. which is massively impactful if you're looking for somewhere to live. Yeah. So we now have that information, like you were saying before, at our fingertips. We can go and find it ourselves. And that's that also element of control coming back like i'm going to control where i'm going to live based on the outdoor air quality i mean the i could say sorry go on you're probably going to say what i'm going to say so go for it yeah. well i was going to say the same can be applied when you start putting chips and phones because people will be assessing doing their own assessments even of indoor air quality in spaces and saying well i've gone on three visits to three different sites for my next office and i've been monitoring the indoor air quality at each of those sites with my phone and it's one of those things where immediately the landlord's on the back foot. 
Whereas if they had something to say, we've had an independent assessment done of our space by a third party with high accuracy sensors, which might be more accurate than that one in your phone, then at least they have the data to rebuttal that situation. Maybe I'm thinking crazy here, but I just could see like someone coming in and um, not taking a job because they don't like the environment they're going to be stuck to work in. You're absolutely right, because we, um, I mean, this is massive plug of aerated now, but um, we really promote the education and awareness side of what we do, um, particularly the R&D. So R&D, awareness and education. We issued a report earlier in the year and we commissioned a survey and the survey results are in this report. But one of our questions was, would you as an individual consider not working for a company if they weren't transparent about the indoor air quality in their space? And 53% of respondents came back and said, yeah, they would consider not working for a company if that was the case. They couldn't tell them the health of the space that they were moving into. Well, there you go. There you I have know. It. So you're right. <laughs> you have the crystal ball and then I'm here with the evidence to back you up. <laughs> Perfect combination. So, Francesca, what's next for Aerated? Oh, apart from global domination, um, actually on our roadmap. So we're moving into New Zealand uh, next month which might seem like a strange move. It's literally the other side of the world, but they are very similar in uh, sort of the way that they design buildings, uh, the building regs they stick to, they follow SIBSI. So it's uh, essentially like a another version of the UK, just over the other side of the world. So New Zealand is our next step. We are entering the US market midway through this year. That's going to be massively exciting and everything could snowball at that point because Americans are just super. I, I was going to say, I feel like they are ahead of the curve in so many ways. And Europe's definitely lagging. It's gone around the world the wrong way for you, for the UK anyway. So it's gone from America over to Australia and New Zealand. And then Europe is so slow on the uptake with this healthy buildings movement. It's quite embarrassing from our point of view anyway. So we were trying to, because we are born and bred in the UK as aerated, we're trying to just dominate this market and make it catch up with the rest of the world. Because it's like, we're behind, guys, and we really need to get our act together. So we're giving you the information. We're giving you the ability to catch up. So chop, chop. Well, <laughs> so sounds, what I was, Oh, yeah, and Karen? I was, just, I was just saying, it sounds like you've got a good good start. You've got, um, you know, Mark Tyson is a good ambassador um, over yeah. at LNG mm-hmm. or LGIM. So uh, it sounds like you guys are off to a great start. Yeah, we we definitely are. And I think definitely once we enter um, the US, that appetite has always, it's been there for years. So we're not going in cold where people don't understand what we are, what we do, which is sort of the position we started off at in the UK. Um, We're going in there. People are already aware. People already want to be doing something. They've probably designated a budget, even at this point, to um, achieve these goals of healthier spaces, more productive spaces. But I mean, I don't know if that's the I don't know whether the reasoning behind it is because there was this research coming out of Harvard and it was all very US centric in terms of being the trailblazers for providing the quantitative business case and the quantitative financial impact of having better indoor environments that that could possibly be it but i just i just feel like particularly with other healthy building standards like the well standard and fitwell both born out of the us it's one of those things where yeah they've been at the us the guys and girls in the us have been ahead of the curve for a while yeah like i said the uk just needs to play catch up at this point 
Well, Francesca, now we're moving into our quick fire round, which you're new to the podcast. So I'm just going to tell you how this works. So we're going to do quick answers, quick questions, quick answers. Um, and the first one is who inspires you in commercial real estate? Mm, good one. Um, I'll go for Ashby Capital. The reason I say that is they're doing a lot around uh, indirect quality monitoring, but also going a lot further than most in terms of how they communicate that to the end user. QR codes, pop-up banners, coffee table books, all that sort of jazz. So Ashby Capital. Excellent. Love it. Love love people uh, trying new things. Um, the next question for you is what podcast or media do you consume to stay up to date on the latest industry trends? So for this one, I'm going to go with CoStar. Uh, they've been around for a while. Lots of people are familiar with them, um, but they really keep their finger on the pulse with new, exciting news and innovation. I'm just wondering who they're going to acquire next. Oh, <laughs> we're here. No, <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, all right, well, my last question is not work-related, um, mm -hmm. but it's dear to my heart, travel. So what is your, assuming you know lockdown is over soon and we can travel again, where is your favorite holiday destination? Uh, I absolutely love Egypt, which might feel a bit left field, um, but I've been there so many times. The only bit that makes me cringe is I did a Nile cruise uh, a couple of years ago when we could travel. Did a cruise up the Nile. The only thing that honestly was hor horrifying to me was these cruise liners going up the Nile and the amount of crap that was being chugged out the back of these boats. It was terrible. I was on a sailboat, which is super eco-friendly, so that's fine. Um, but Egypt. Egypt okay. is the one. Well, there's a lot of denial going on in the industry <laughs> oh, on yeah, whether people well, are coming please. back to the office or not. Sorry, I had to go there. I'm a, I'm a sucker for dead jokes. Everyone hates you for it. <laughs> yep, yep. Everybody's rolling their eyes if they're still listening. <laughs> um, look, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights, Francesca. Um, where can people find you on social media? Oh, where can they find me on social media? So I just recently got Twitter. Um, so Francesca Brady 2 on Twitter. Um, I've got LinkedIn. So Francesca Brady, you can get through to me uh, if you search Aerated and find the company page. What else do I have? Ugh, got, we've got uh, Airscore as our Instagram um, and also Airscore as our company uh, Twitter page. Excellent. And we'll put those links in the show notes below so you can tap on those easily. Make sure you connect with uh, Francesca and Aerated on social media. Thank you for tuning in today. And until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at PodcastSyndicator.com or Brett at PodcastSyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts. Podcasts.